All right, let's go ahead and get to Joel chapter 2. The book of Joel chapter 2. We've been, Joel's been hitting us pretty hard. I mean, he's, uh, Joel is a, is a pretty heavy book and deals with the, I got to get this chocolate out of the way here, man. That's, I'm on a diet, man. That's a terrible thing to put up here. <laughs> Tempting. But I want to be a blessing. I want to be an encouragement. And I think the Lord does that in these verses tonight. Uh, the title basically of this this portion would be just the wonderful promises. Uh, he's he's lowered the boom. He's let people know exactly what's coming, and and he's really I mean it's just it's a shocker. But now he it's like a little interlude here that he 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 doesn't change direction, but he he lets you know. And gives you, like this lady said, hope. Uh, hope of what's ahead uh, if you do what's right. And he starts this out in verse number 17. Uh, in Joel chapter 2, verse number 17, he said, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them stay. Spare thy people, O Lord. And give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? You say, well, what what does that have to do with promises? He kind of lays down the criteria for these promises. He says, I want to bless you, but there's there's a requirement here. It's called repentance. And we've mentioned that several times in the different teachings here, but he, he reviews this right before he goes in and just starts just blessing all over the place. And he, he says, look, it's the priest, the ministers of the Lord. Revival begins with God's men. That's why you need to pray for your pastor. You need to pray for these other men and on staff uh, that God would keep them right. Uh, boy, it's, it, I've, I've been there. I've been there as a pastor. And, and it's not easy. you got your own problems. You've got your own family problems. You've got your own children problems. You've got your, your own financial problems. And you got all that. And then they got yours too. Because they're responsible for you. As they go to God, working, at, working with the Lord and trying to help you, not only in the messages, but giving counsel and praying constantly uh, for you. It, it, it begins with, with the, the, the men of God. But he's saying, you priests, those back in the Old Testament there in Judah, he said, you've got to start this thing out. But in the New Testament, I want you to understand something. We are the priests of God. That you're a holy nation, a holy priesthood, he says. They were the holy nation, but we are the holy priesthood. We are priest believers or believer priests, however you want to say it. So as a husband, you have that same responsibility for God as a pastor does. You're the pastor in your home. You're the pastor of your family. 
And you have a lot of responsibility there that you may not realize. So he says, first of all, it starts with the leadership. It starts with those that are in charge. He says, weep. It's one thing to understand something that's going on. But it's another thing to be really brokenhearted. It's it's one thing to know that America is just deep in sin. But how much does that bother us? When we first got saved, and and boy, I mean, sin, it just, boy, we, we might take God's name in vain or something right after we got saved. And I mean, it just break my heart. I, I'd, I'd leave the, uh, where I was working in the military and I'd, I'd just go outside and weep. What a rotten testimony. God, you saved me. How in the world could I do something like that? And it really, it would bother us. But now we hear swearing and it just like water off a duck's back. The things that used to bother us don't bother us anymore. He said, what we've got to do is weep. He's telling the priest, he says, weep. Don't just be sad, but be brokenhearted for sin. Brokenhearted for the people. You know somebody is involved in sin in the church. You, you get on your face before God and you, you come to God with, with seriousness and weep because of that brother or sister. Don't let that stuff keep going on. Sin should, we should be brokenhearted. Now notice what he says. It's very interesting here. He said, let the priest and minister of the Lord weep, where? Between the porch and the altar. Any, any clue what that's talking about? <laughs> it's interesting. Whenever the high priest once a year would go out into in between the, the porch and the altar here. The porch was just kind of a, 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 a small thing, about 10, uh, 10 by 20 or something like that, a little bigger than that. But uh, then you have the altar where the burnt sacrifices were made. And in between there, that's where the high priest would come and he would lay his hands on that sacrifice for the sins of Israel, for the people. All of the people that were coming in, they could come and they, they would be around that front, around the altar and around outside looking in through those gates and everything. And they would be able to see that priest as he laid his hands on that yearly sacrifice. This is where when, when God rebuked Israel and, and he showed the, pre, the prophet, he said, he said, I want you to look. And he took him through the wall. And he showed him the priests that were standing in between this porch and the, and the altar when they turned their backs on the temple of God to worship the sun god. Idolatry right in the midst of their worship. And God was upset, to say the least. It was where Zechariah, one of the prophets, was killed. You think, well, they'd wait till he get out, gets out in the bush or something and then put a rock on his head or something. No. They killed him right there in between the porch and the altar. 
this was a place where the, where the priest would come and they would literally prostrate themselves on their face and that was their area of prayer, crying out to God. And that's why God, God says here, he said, you priests, he said, you forgot something. You need to go out in between the porch and the altar and you need to get on your face and you need to weep for sin and weep for the people. Otherwise, judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. Every one of the priests had to pass through that in order to get into the temple. They had to go right through that area before they ever served God. And when we serve God, I don't care what you're doing, you need to bathe it in prayer. Asking God to do something that you might serve the Lord with the best of your ability. So he's getting their attention here. Notice he says, what you cry out is you say, spare thy people. You're interceding on behalf of other people. It's not going there with a wish list. Uh, God, thank you for this day. Now, Lord, I want you to do this. I need that. And would you do this? And I need this over here and kind of help me out over here. And no, no, it was on, it was interceding on behalf of other people. Lord, spare thy people. Do it. You don't realize, I really do not believe that Christians realize the importance and the power that you have. And it's called prayer. It's just, it's amazing. One of my brother, brothers in Christ in New York City, sent me a text, and we've been praying about something for quite some time, a real tough, bad situation, and God answered our prayer today. God answers these prayers. But he goes on in, the, in this passage, and he says, uh, Give not thine heritage to reproach. Give not thine heritage to reproach. What in the world are we talking about here? Well, I think Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 20 uh, gives us an idea. He says, but the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. You, the inheritance was a big thing in Israel. That's why to be the firstborn you got actually double the inheritance of the rest, rest of the siblings and everything. Uh, he's saying we're not supposed to be conquered by the world. We are supposed to be involved in everything, showing forth the testimony of Jesus Christ and how we have overcome the world through Jesus Christ so that we are not a reproach. That his heritage, his inheritance is not a reproach. We're not to be the conquered, but we're to be rulers in a, in a dark and a wicked world. Be, be that testimony for God of his grace. How he's given us something we don't deserve. But as he's given us his grace... We can do anything. 
as he's shown his mercy and should have probably just punished us to, to death. But yet, he held back his punishment and blessed us in spite of ourselves and our, and our situations. His goodness, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, God says. So as we're showing forth the goodness, that's why I, how many of you like coming on Thanksgiving? You like that service? I absolutely love that service. I got to know more about people and begin to pray for those people and understood those people and understood the great graciousness and goodness of God as they would give uh, to them seeming maybe a small testimony, but a very powerful testimony because the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. And as you see in this person's life what, how, the, the problem there and how God overcame that problem in their life, you see how God takes a, 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 a wicked woman and saves her because he loves her and forgives her and turns her life around. Now she's not only going to be a testimony to those that listen to Life Radio, but to those of us that get these prayer letters and are praying for them, but also to her family that she couldn't talk to before. And I guarantee you that woman is a witness for Christ. The goodness of God. God uses that in your life. That's why, that's why you should give your testimony, testimony of salvation, how God has done this, how he's worked in your life here. Yes, there was a problem, but God overcame that problem in my life. That's what people need to hear. And that's what we're not hearing. We're not, we're not talking to people about the Lord and about his goodness. Say, so, well, they're not, they're, it won't do any good. Yes, it will. It really will. Testimony, it is so, so vital. We've got to know who we are. We've got to know who we are. Notice, the Lord give not thine heritage to reproach. We, we are not just Christians. We are children of God. Now stop and think about what we just said. We're not a relative of Bush, Biden, Trump, any of those folks. That means that talks about money, prestige, Hollywood, stuff like that. We are children of Almighty God. If you know who you are and you think about that a little bit, it'll change your thinking. It'll change your mind. Who are you? God says you're, you're an inheritance, his inheritance. You are a valued property. You are valuable to him. And that's why he says, I want you to be my witnesses. Witnesses unto me. 
He didn't choose angels. He didn't choose all the rich folks in the world. He chose you and me, common, ordinary folks. That's why this, this church is such an absolute magnified blessing of God because it was him, not our abilities. But God is working because we're his children and we're giving him that, that opportunity to use us. Notice something out, an, an, an inheritance is permanent. An inheritance is permanent. It's non-transferable. When you understand that you are, your inheritance to God, you're his people. And he says that we cannot lose what God has given us. He's given us eternal life. You, cannot, you can't change it. It is, it is permanent. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You can't get any more secure than that. We as the inheritance of God understand who you are as a child of God. You don't have to worry about a lot of stuff the rest of the world worries about. They're all messed up. We are children of God. And as we are, are ambassadors of Christ going out to serve him. Now, when he's talking about the heathen, he talks about, he's talking about Babylon, no doubt. But he's, remember, it's a dual prophecy. Part of it was for Judah. And they would refer to Babylon there as the heathen. But then as he goes on, no doubt, talking to us about what's coming. And you have those that are mocking. Notice, notice what he said. Uh, where is their God? That's what they were saying. They were mocking. They were blaspheming. They'll claim that their God is greater. Their way is greater. And because we don't stand up, we cause the lost to blaspheme. By our testimony, not living for Christ and just yielding ourselves to the world, we cause the lost to blaspheme. We give them nothing to look forward to. We, no, we don't bring them to God. And so they're there boasting about their God in their way, and, and we say nothing. God's way is always right. Psalm 20, or 42 and verse 10 says, As with a sword in my bones, mine enemies reproach me, while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Let me ask you something. Where is your God? A lot of Christians go around and they're down in the mouth and, and belly aching about everything and griping about everything and they hate their work and they hate their boss and they hate the people they work with and they hate their job and they hate their house and they hate... Well, just die. Get it over with. I mean, you, you're miserable and there's a real problem there. Why? Because you don't know who you are. Where is your God? 
Maybe it's because you're not following him. The promises, all these promises we're going to talk about, is based on repentance. He said, if we'll repent, if we'll do these things, and we'll start crying out to God, and and God, God will work in these things. He said, I'm going to do several things for you. Notice in verse 18, the Lord repents. <laughs> I love that. In verse, 20, verse 18, then you ought to circle that word. That is an important, important word. Because it's not just saying these words, but he says, if this happens, if we cry out, if we, if we serve God, if we repent, he said, then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Then, when we have truly repented, after we've fasted, after we've humbled ourselves, as we talked about before, after we've come together, after we've sanctified ourselves, as we talked about last week, God intervenes, now watch this, for his land. He intervenes for his people. God loves Israel, and he hasn't forgotten them. He's still working with Israel. The word jealous here, that envious, he's, he's envying his people. He wants to have a relationship with Israel. But it's the same with God's people. God's people get away from God. And he says, I'm jealous of you. I want to bless you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, For I am, a, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. He wants to present you to himself. But he says, I want to present you as a chaste virgin. Husbands, do you realize that's how you're supposed to present your wife to God? That's what he says. He says, we're to love our, our wives like Christ loved the church. And he said, this is a picture of Christ and his church. But he says, we are to present our wives as Christ is presenting the church to himself as a chaste virgin. If our wives are not living for the Lord, it's partly our fault. We're not teaching them. We're not directing. We're not saying no. Say, well, you don't know my wife. You don't know mine either. And they don't like it when you say no. But there's times when a man's got to stand up and say, honey, I love you, but no. You say, well, They'll get mad. Well, they'll get glad later. We are the leaders in the home. And we must be leaders. Ladies, some of you need to let your husbands lead. Because it's not that way. God's going to intervene on behalf of his land and his people, he says here. So, so don't mess with God's, whatever God, whatever God says. This is my land, this is my people. 
Now, the first promise here, the promise to his people of satisfaction, Joel verse, verse 19 there. Yea, the Lord will answer. That's a promise. And say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. You see, the Lord is the one that's answering the prayer. He says, I am the one that's going to do this. This is a promise from Almighty God. He says, when you cry, when you plead, and we must pray sincerely. Not just shoot up a quick one, just say we prayed. But I mean, get on our face before God and cry out to God because it's broken our hearts. Sin in our life, sin in our homes, sin in our our families, sin in our church, whatever it might be, sin in our nation. He said, I will send the corn and the wine and the oil, all those things that the locusts had destroyed. All those things that God said you have to have to continue with life. The medicine, the, the, the ability to, to, to eat and to function, all of these things. And he said, I, you're going to be satisfied he said, I'm going, this is a promise to my people. The provisions, the blessings, the worship. When he provides these things, then we would be able to offer back to him. One of the first things he said when we started Joel's, he said, you won't, I'm cutting off your offerings. You're not even going to have enough food to offer me anything. That's how bad off it was going to be. But God says, I got a promise for you here. You repent. And it's coming back. He said, no more be a reproach. Remember the Holocaust? God took Israel to the woodshed. Just to be called a Jew, it's in a negative connotation. What are you, a Jew? Uh, Where do you go to the market, in Gentile or Jew? I mean, it's always had that negative connotation. Connotation. There's even people suing folks right now for calling them a Jew or something. It, it's crazy. But that testimony that the Jewish people have had all through these years, God says, no more. You'll not be a reproach anymore. Notice he says, before the nations. As Israel has been taken captive, and now he said, if you don't repent, Judah, I'm going to take you captive. You're a reproach amongst all the nations. And he said, when you repent, when you come to this place, he said, then, he said, I'll go ahead and I'll do all of this and I will, I will bless you. This is a promise from me to you. The promise of intervention in verse number 20. He says, but I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face towards the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. 
God says, I promise I am going to intervene. And if you'll notice that after they had been in captivity for 70 years, God did intervene and he did bring them back and bless them. But God's talking about Armageddon. And God's talking about Russia. And God's talking about the millennial here. You say, how do you, why do you say that? Because of Ezekiel 39 and how he describes it here. He said in Ezekiel 39 verse 2, and I will turn thee back. Israel's not fighting and turning them back. It's not by man's power. He said, I will turn thee back and leave thee but a sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts. Yes, Babylon is north, but so is Russia. And Babylon was, was, they already did their thing. Now God is going to bring Russia. And we could go into hours on all that. And will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And notice he says, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, will cause thine arrow to fall out of the right hand. And it shall come to pass, look in verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers in the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers. And there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hamagog. God's the one that's going to remove these people, not some army. The northern armies, yes, Babylon was in the north, and, he's, and they're seeing that. They know that that army is in the north, and possibly that's what that was on their mind. But God also says then later on in Ezekiel and some of these others that it's going to happen after Babylon has done all of that. This is later when Russia invades Israel. The stink he talks about, and yet in in Ezekiel, he said, it'll stop their noses, the smell of all the death. He talks about being driven back. And I want to draw your attention to this. He says, they're driven back. And they, they turn thee back, he says in Ezekiel. Now, at Armageddon, the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord the enemy is totally destroyed and cast into hell. There is no army to turn back. So he, he has to be talking about that ultimate day of the Lord. In verse 21, he talks about the promise of his, or to his creation. And this is important, people. I mean, it, it really is. He says, fear not, verse 21, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. He's talking about the land. Notice verse 22. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. The Lord will do great things, he says. He said, I'm going to take care of my land. I'm going to take care of the animals. I'm going to take care of the trees. I'm going to take care of the crops. I'm going to bring them all back. And they will be fruitful. You don't have to worry about global warming. Amen. The promise of intervention is based 
on repentance. The promise to his creation is based on repentance. Notice the promise of joy in verse 23. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. He said, look, I'm going to bring your rejoicing back. I'm going to bring your joy back. Because of all the problems, there was no joy in the land. There was devastation. There was starvation. There was death all over. And he said there was no hope for these people. But he said, you repent. And he said, I'll bring it back. I'm going to bring it back. Joy, listen carefully. Joy comes from the Lord. You see, you see Christians always down, you know, never smiling, always down, you know, in, in the dumps and always complaining and everything. Look, when you spend time with God, how can you be sad and bitter? I love, I love my devotions in the morning. I sit there with God and I have a spell. I look over at Mama, she's having her devotions right next to me. She's got a smile on her face. She's, she just, she's almost in heaven. She's next to heaven. Talking to God, praying, praying for kids, praying for grandkids, praying for you. Hopefully praying for me. <laughs> and there's a joy. Listen to me. When you come into the presence of Almighty God, or when God comes into your presence, he fills your heart with joy. And you're not going to be bad-mouthing everybody. You're not going to be down the mouth. You're going to be joyful. He says, my presence when I come back. He said, I'm going to restore your joy. You will rejoice. You ever notice when you come to church, you just feel like singing and you just... Just feel like praising God, and sometimes you know you'd just like to stand up and say, Amen! But you don't because you're Baptist, and <laughs> I do in my heart. I'm telling you, there's times I'd like to run the aisles and jump the pews, but the pews would fall over. Amen, glory to God. But when you're in the presence of God, there's joy. Now, when you look, when people look on your face, you in the presence of God? When you go to work, you in the presence of God? When you're with your friends, are you in the presence of God? You are. But you have to be fighting him a whole lot to not be joyful. Because when you're in the presence of God, and the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. He brings joy. He said, I'll bring back your rain, that freshness, that cleanness. 
He said, I'll bring it right on time. He said, the early rain will come through up from October to December. That's when they need to prepare the ground. That's when they need to germinate the seed and all that. He said, I'm going to bring it right on time. He said, the latter rain, that comes through March through April. That's when everything is growing. And so that you have a plentiful, good crop. He said, I'm going to bring it all. When Ezra repents, that will be in the tribulation. They repent in the tribulation and they receive Christ as their Savior. And that's when God said, I'm going to restore the rain. And then from the millennial on, it's going to be like paradise again. The latter rain, you've ever heard of the latter rain movement? Any of you heard of that latter rain movement? Good. It's twisted theology. I'll not even get into it then. But the promise of joy is based on repentance. If we don't repent, we're not going to have joy. Then he has a promise of abundant blessings in Joel chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, and the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. God says, I'm going to fill your barns. He said, not only give you plenty to eat, but he said, there's plenty to go around. When you give to the Lord, he said, I'll give unto you pressed down, shaken together, running over. God's promises in the Old Testament are the same as it is now. He promises to bless us with abundant blessings. But the abundant blessings is conditioned on and based on repentance. The promise of restoration in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust had eaten. The canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. God's the one that sent that devastation to help them. Oh yeah, it, they were suffering. But the purpose was to bring them back to God. Why do you think we have problems? That's when we start seeking after God. When we can't figure it out anymore, finally, and the government can't come to our aid or something, then we finally turn to God and we begin to cry out to him and we repent. And what happens? God does exactly what he's been telling us. He blesses us. He said, I'll restore what they lost. Just like Job lost everything. But then later on, God gave him twice as much. God is fair. The world is not fair, but God is fair. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was his army. It was his doing. Both the locusts and Babylon and Armageddon and all of that that's coming in the tribulation is of God and it's fair. So well, people are dying over at that halfway point over over. Half the population of the world is already destroyed. How many billion people make COVID look like a Sunday school picnic? And God says, I'm fair. You say, well, they refuse to repent. That's what it says in Revelation. They would not repent. So they're getting what they asked for. That intervention is based on repentance. The restoration is based on repentance. 
The, notice the promise of a relationship in verse 26. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. God said, I'm going to give you plenty. And because of that, what's going to cause us to praise him. We're going to recognize it came from God. The blessings have come. Not because of our talent, not because of our ability, our money, but because of God. He's the one and we'll glorify him with a grateful heart. A grateful heart. He said in verse 26, he says, we'll never be ashamed. The word ashamed there is disappointed or put to shame. They'll know that uh, who he is, that he is with them. Many times we get in a problem, we say, well, where's God? God's right there. God's right there. He said, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Neither did Job. And God's using this in your life and the lives of other people. And God has great things in store on the other side. They know who he is. And that he says that I am God. I don't think we understand who we're dealing with that actually he is God. He said, I did wondrously. You mean the locust? That was, that was wondrously, doing wondrously for you? Having Babylon come in and take us captive, that was wondrously? Yes, that's exactly what they needed. And so is the tribulation. And so is your problems and my problems. Our difficulties, our health issues, it's what we need. God knows exactly what each individual needs and when they need it. And God says, I'm going to be right there with you. If you'll stay right with me, if you'll repent, if you'll have this relationship, he says, that I want with you. He said, it'll, it'll be a blessing. It'll be wondrous. No one else, no other God. No, knowing God, that, that intimacy with God. You'll never be ashamed. Never be ashamed of your faith. Never be ashamed of your hope. Never, think, never be ashamed of, your, your, of, of Christ and the expectation you have in Christ. You'll never be ashamed of his promises. Never be ashamed of his word. He said, you'll never be ashamed anymore, Israel or Judah. And had they repented, that would have been true. But when they get saved in the tribulation, it will be true. And it's true of us as well. Won't be ashamed of his coming, of our profession, all of it. What's God saying? He says, trust me. Trust me. You will not be disappointed. You're on the winning side. He said, I want a relationship with you. What is a relationship? What is your relationship with God? So he's my savior. 
How far does that go? That's it? A relationship constitutes about five things, and I'm just going to run it real quick because we're out of time. Communication. It's called prayer. Listening. That's called prayer and reading the Word of God. Working through disagreements. That's called repentance on our part. And it's a two-way street. Two-way communication. Two-way listening. And that trust, a complete trust in the other. In marriages, you have to have that to have a proper relationship. As families, you have to have that trust to have that relationship. But what is your relationship with God You see, that's why people don't tithe. They can't trust God. They don't have a relationship with him. They only have him as a, a, you know, a fire escape. When when God says, I want you to do this, well, what will the world say? Who cares what the world says? What's your relationship with God? If you start looking at it from From that aspect, what is my relationship with God? Forget the world, forget the family, forget everything else. What is my relationship with God? What does he want? Do I trust him? If we do, his commandments are not grievous. His word is not a problem. Obeying him, it's a joy. Serving him, what a blessing. It's exciting. Father, Lord, the promise of relationships based on repentance. And Lord, Judah may have repented for a while, but it didn't continue in that right relationship with you. They did not repent and were taken captive out of their land and they lost everything for 70 long years until you brought them back and bless them. Did they learn their lesson? No. They're away from you. So Joel has given us not only that prophecy concerning Babylon, but also looking down the road, it seems that same prophecies for us that you're coming and you're going to judge. And that we must be ready. We must repent and put you first. God help us now in these days to take a good look at our relationship. And understand that you have promised us so many things. And you want to bless us in so many ways. But it's all based on our repentance. God help us as we study your word to be obedient to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand just real quickly? I'm not going to take a lot of time on an invitation. If you'll just go ahead and play, Miss Anita. And I'll have Brother Joel come and be ready for the prayer, or for the, the prayer time. But repentance. God lays it out. He lays it out harshly in the prophecy, but he lays it out beautiful in the promises 
that he has for us. He wants to bless us. He wants to use us. But he said, all you got to do is repent. Turn to me. Trust me. Let me take control of your life and do what you cannot do. Will you trust him? Will you let him have his way in your heart?